Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Tuesday, February 20, and I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette, Nice Day to Go Fishing is the caption on the top of this photo of Keenan Frericks of Mount Vernon as he adjusts his line fishing from the shore on Monday at Palisades Kepler State Park in Mount Vernon. It's a beautiful day, so we decided to go fishing. We even got to see some bald eagles, Frerich said about his impromptu trip with friend Mason Coyle. Monday's high temperature in Cedar Rapids reached 56 degrees, about 20 degrees warmer than the average high for February 19. Jeff Stelfox is credited for the photo from the Gazette. Also on the front page, prosecutor says shooting by Cedar Rapids officer was clearly justified. This story is by Emily Anderson. As shooting suspect Michael Griffin fled police early New Year's Day in the car he had taken from his parents, he called his mom from behind the wheel. This is it, Mom. I'm going to shoot at them. I'm going to try and kill them, he said, according to a report issued Monday. If not, this is it for me. In the 11-minute chase, the 20-year-old fired at least twice at the Cedar Rapids officers, even shattering the rear window as he shot through it. When an officer finally forced the Hyundai Sonata off the road, authorities heard a gunshot coming from inside the car. Thinking that shot also was meant for them, the five pursuing officers opened fire, shooting a total of 63 rounds. But none of those bullets struck Griffin. Instead, that final shot came from him, fatally shooting himself in the forehead with an assault-style weapon, the report said. The officers, Sergeant Graham Campshire, Officer Lauren Culver, Officer Christopher Hedinger, Officer Jonathan McDowell, and Officer Dylan Hall, were placed on administrative leave while the officer-involved shooting was investigated by the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, which is routine in such cases. The findings were turned over February 13th to Lynn County Attorney Nick Baymags to decide whether any charges against the officers were merited. Criminal charges against these officers are not warranted, Maybanks concluded in a report released Monday. Their actions on the morning of January 1, 2024, were taken to protect the community and to save their lives. Without question, this was clearly a justified shooting by these officers. The officer-involved shooting was investigated by the DCI and the Lynn County Sheriff's Office and involved interviewing each of the officers and reviewing squad and body camera footage of the chase and the shooting. On the last night of his life, Griffin went to New Year's Eve parties. One of them was supposed to be at 414 Longwood Drive Northeast in Cedar Rapids, but he and a teenage friend went to a different address instead. When it was early New Year's Day, Griffin told his 17-year-old friend he'd take him home, but first had to handle some business, according to a report. Griffin told the teen another person had stolen his gun, and the pair returned to the house at Longwood Drive to look for him. Griffin, now armed with an AR-15, got out of the car and talked with residents of the house. Griffin then got back in the car and shot toward the house several times with the AR-15. They drove away. A short time later, about 6.30 a.m., they returned to the house and were spotted by police officers who were nearby. The pursuit began. 
The teen heard Griffin telling his mother he was going to shoot at police, and he begged Griffin to let him out of the car. Griffin dropped the teen off near the intersection of 1st Avenue East and 12th Street Southeast and began firing at police about 20 seconds later. It was clear Griffin had no regard for the lives of the officers, the public, or himself, the report stated. Griffin leaned out of the driver's window to shoot at police and shut out his back window. At times, he aimed the car at the approaching squad cars. The chase reached speeds of 75 to 80 miles an hour, the report said. Finally, as the chase reached about the 5600 block of Mount Vernon Road southeast, a police officer trained in the PIT, or Precision Immobilization Technique, hit the back quarter panel of the Hyundai, forcing it into a ditch where it struck a utility pole. That officer, Culver, said he thought about being shot and his death, Maybank's report said. Officer Culver stated he wondered what being shot and dying would be like and how it would happen. Officer Culver said he saw the faces of his wife and children and felt guilty for making such a dangerous decision without consulting with them. Officers feared Griffin was reloading his rifle inside the stalled car. Officers did not realize that Griffin had shot himself and believed he was firing at them, the report said. The 63 shots fired by all officers were discharged in rapid succession over the course of approximately seven seconds, when all officers still feared for their lives and safety, and under circumstances wherein the force was reasonable until the threat subsided or was neutralized. Afterward, Griffin's mother told police her other son kept multiple guns in their home that weren't locked up. She said Griffin had talked about suicide and about going on a shooting spree, and he was receiving treatment and taking medication for suspected mental illness. In her opinion, she did not believe he wanted to shoot and kill the police, but wanted the police to kill him, the report states. The Cedar Rapids Police Department released a statement Monday commending the five officers involved in the shooting. They exercised tremendous restraint and commitment while taking action to protect innocent lives, the lives of fellow officers, and their own lives. They are to be commended for their bravery, the statement reads. Our focus now is on returning these officers to full working status while ensuring their physical and mental health needs are met. Events like this take a toll on the officers, their families, and the department, and we understand the importance of support. Turning to the Iowa Today page, Trayer woman charged with killing husband in 2021. This story by Trish Mahaffey. A Trayer woman accused of shooting her husband in the face two times in 2021 was charged Monday with first-degree murder in Tama County District Court. Tama County Sheriff's deputies found Karina Sue Cooper, age 46, sitting on top of her husband, Ryan Roy Cooper, who was lying in a recliner in their home after they received a 911 call about 4.35 a.m. on June 18, 2021, according to a criminal complaint. He appeared to have a gunshot wound to his face. The 911 call reported someone had been shot at the Cooper's residence, 1846 K Avenue in Trayer. The complaint doesn't state who made the call. Karina Cooper and her three children, also in the residence, when deputies arrived, were taken outside. Medical personnel responded, but the examiner pronounced Ryan Cooper dead at the scene. 
Further investigation, including an autopsy, showed that Ryan Cooper died from two gunshot injuries. A 22 caliber was found in the residence and collected by the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations Crime Scene Team. No crime scene team, excuse me. No gun was found in the immediate area of the body, the complaint stated. During the investigation, which included multiple search warrants and interviews, investigators learned Karina Cooper told two witnesses she wanted her husband dead and could shoot him in the face. Karina Cooper was arrested on a warrant last Friday and charged with first-degree murder during an initial appearance on Monday, according to court documents. During the hearing, a judge set bail at $1 million pending her trial. Last year, the Tama Toledo News Chronicle published a story about the anniversary of Ryan Cooper's death and the continued investigation. Cedar Valley Crime Stoppers was offering a $17,000 reward for information in the case. The investigation is ongoing. Anyone with information related to this investigation is asked to contact the Tama County Sheriff's Office at 641-484-4111 or email dcinfo at dps.state.ia.us. Also on page two, four birds killed in fire at Iowa Raptor Project. This story by Emily Anderson. Four birds, two red-tailed hawks, one Harris's hawk, and one griffalcon were killed in a fire Friday at the Iowa Raptor Project, a conservation center in Solon, jointly sponsored by the University of Iowa and Kirkwood Community College. The North Liberty and Solon Fire Departments responded at 4.24 a.m. Friday to the Iowa Raptor Project property at 3673 Raptor Ridge Road, according to a news release from the UI. Firefighters found a fire in four enclosures called Mews, for birds at the property. The four mews were completely lost, as well as the birds kept in each. Other birds at the property are being observed for signs of distress, the news release states. The center said on its website that it displayed 17 birds of prey, which it said could not be released to the wild, to the public. The cause of the fire is under investigation, and an estimate of the cost of damages is not yet available. The Iowa Raptor Project and the McBride Nature Recreation Center will be closed until further notice, according to the release. Also on page two, this story again by Emily Anderson, body found near Amana Lily Lake. The Iowa County Sheriff's Office is investigating a dead body that was found Sunday morning near the picnic area of the Amana Lily Lake, according to a news release from the Sheriff's Office. Law enforcement was notified of the discovery of the body at 10.12 a.m. on Sunday. The body has been identified, but the sheriff's office has not released the name of the deceased pending notification of next of kin. The release states the body was female, but did not give an age or other identifying information. The body was transported to the Iowa State Medical Examiner's Office in Ankeny for an autopsy, the release states. Also on Iowa Today's page, this story by Aaron Jordan is titled, Hearing, Strengthen CAFO or CAFO Rules in Karst Areas. A handful of people who spoke at a public hearing Monday want Iowa regulators to strengthen rules 
for animal feeding operations, especially in the karst topography of northeast Iowa. They were commenting on a proposed revision to Iowa Administrative Rules, Chapter 65, which the Iowa Department of Natural Resources stripped of additional karst protections last fall after livestock owner groups expressed concerns. The reason we have Chapter 65 is to protect the public and the public trust from the worst practices of industrialized agriculture. Steve Vise, a retired Iowa State University employee and a water quality advocate, said during the virtual hearing. In Northeast Iowa, we have outstanding Iowa waters, he said. We have areas of karst that need extra protection. They're really not getting that protection when these plans are reviewed by DNR staff, not unless there's a huge outcry. Diane Rosenberg, Executive Director of Jefferson County Farmers and Neighbors, said the Iowa DNR should do the following things to improve oversight of concentrated animal feeding operations. Require a 25-foot separation between manure pits and karst terrain to reduce the risk manure will contaminate groundwater. Create a system to know whether CAFO operations held by separate LLCs are owned by the same people. Replace the manure, excuse me, replace paper manure management plans with digital records that can be more easily studied to see if manure is being overapplied. When the Iowa DNR proposed a revised Chapter 65 last year, a version released in September required new feeding operations near karst terrain to have a greater barrier between manure basins and the porous soil common in northeast Iowa. Agricultural groups, including the Iowa Cattlemen's Association, Iowa Farm Bureau Federation, Iowa Pork Producers Association, and the North Central Poultry Association, asked the agency to reconsider previous comments about adding more karst protections. We remain concerned about the unintended consequences of the new requirements, the group wrote, according to an email Kelly Book and the Iowa DNR Legal Services team forwarded to agency staff in late September. The Iowa DNR had asked the governor's office to or for approval of the Chapter 65 with additional karst protections. On November 7, Nate Ristow, the Administrative Rules Coordinator on Governor Reynolds' staff, called Iowa DNR Director Kayla Lyon to tell her he would not approve the new rules because they did not comply with Reynolds' executive order, which said rules that were revised during a moratorium must reduce the overall regulatory burden rather than adding new requirements, officials said. On November 8, the Iowa DNR released a new version of Chapter 65 that did not include any additional protections for karst. The Iowa Environmental Protection Commission in November approved that version for rulemaking. The Iowa DNR will accept written comments on the proposed rule through Friday at afo at dnr.iowa.gov. The commission is expected to vote in April to approve a final rule. Also in Iowa Today news, man accused of Cedar Rapids bank robbery extradited to Lynn. An Iowa City man who was arrested in New Orleans in January after police believed he robbed a Cedar Rapids bank at gunpoint has been extradited to Lynn County on robbery charges. Andrew Durr, age 21, is charged with two counts of first-degree robbery. According to a criminal complaint on January 3rd, 
He robbed the Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust branch at 5400 Council Street Northeast. Durr was caught on video surveillance entering the bank, jumping over the counter, and displaying a firearm at two tellers, according to the complaint. The tellers gave him $16,705 in cash, including marked bait money with serial numbers that are recorded by Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. Durr made them put the money in a backpack with gray and black accents and rubber handle. The vehicle Durr drove to the bank was captured on surveillance video at the bank and by a license plate reader on a Cedar Rapids police car that was responding to the robbery. The license plate reader identified Durr as the owner of the vehicle. Durr had opened an account at the Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust in July of 2023 and video surveillance at the time he came into the bank to open his account showed he had the same physical dimensions and the same distinct backpack as the robbery suspect, according to the complaint. Police with a warrant searched Durr's apartment in Iowa City and said they found his wallet, which had receipts for bank deposits at a bank in Westminster, Maryland on January 5 and January 6, and a receipt from the Chicago International Airport on January 8. Police recovered the money deposited in Maryland, which contained 24 $20 bait bills. Police also found 37 $2 bills while searching Durr's apartment, which was the exact amount of $2 bills taken during the robbery, the complaint states. Durr had his first appearance in court Monday and is being held on $100,000 bail. That story was by Emily Anderson, and this story also by Emily is titled Iowa City Police Investigating Attempted Abduction. The Iowa City Police Department is seeking the public's help identifying a suspect in an attempted abduction Saturday near Oakland Cemetery. Police responded to the area at 10.25 p.m. for a report that someone had attempted to abduct a 12-year-old child, according to a news release from the department. The suspect was described as wearing a black leather coat, black gloves, and a hooded sweatshirt. The suspect's gender or any other descriptive information has not been released. Police are asking anyone who may have information about the incident or surveillance footage from the area to contact Detective Ryan Wood at 319-356-5292 or email rwood at iowa-city.org. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest column today is by Senators Janice Weiner, Todd Taylor, and Molly Donahue, entitled, What If You Didn't Vote?, and it counted against you. Election laws are again on the agenda at the state legislature. Imagine, if you will, that state election laws required you to vote every single time. No exceptions. And imagine that if you didn't, for whatever reason, that would count as a no vote. Sounds absurd, right? Welcome to the world of Iowa's public sector unions, and it's been their world since 2017 when the newly minted Republican trifecta rolled back Chapter 20 bargaining rights in a brazen attempt to do away with public sector unions. But seven years on, 98% of public sector unions still exist. They organized and they voted every single time because it's their only chance to have a seat at the table, 
to have any say in wages and schedules. Fast forward to 2024. Union-busting legislators went back to the drawing board and thought up an ingenious new idea. If an employer, a city for example, fails to produce the required list of workers eligible to vote in a public sector union's recertification election, that union must take them to court in an expedited proceeding or be decertified. Iowa's district court dockets are already full. They are understaffed and overworked. As Senator Bill Dotzler, Democrat from Waterloo, pointed out during the Senate's Workforce Committee debate last week, it's like being robbed at gunpoint. Then, as the victim, having to bring suit yourself even though the police caught the suspect. Employers already hold almost all the cards, and now, if Senate File 2374 passes both houses and Governor Kim Reynolds signs it into law, any public sector employers who operate in bad faith need only withhold the list and poof, the union associated with them will be decertified. To return to our original premise, imagine if you didn't vote in the next election and that counted as a no vote. And imagine if the state mandated that anyone who didn't print ballots could get off the hook if voters didn't immediately take them to court. That's what's happening here. Think it's undemocratic? Tell your legislators. Write them. Call them. Show up at the Capitol, if you are able, and call them to account. Unions help ensure that people earn a living wage, and we all know how important that is. Oh, and you might want to vote this fall. After our Republican colleagues do away with secure drop boxes, move up the deadline for absentee voting, and make you use a third envelope. Yep, they want to make it harder for you to vote, too. But at least if you don't vote, it won't, yet, count as a no vote. And so far, they're still printing the ballots. And again, that is submitted by State Senators Janice Wiener, a Democrat from Iowa City, Todd Taylor, Democrat from Cedar Rapids, and Molly Donahue, Democrat from Cedar Rapids. Guest column today by Gary Warner is titled, Republicans' Actions Don't Improve Education. I was an educator for 40 years, mostly in Iowa, as a classroom teacher, a guidance counselor, and as an administrator. When I went to national conferences, I was proud to say I was from Iowa and was envied by many other educators because of that fact. Educators in other states envied our ability to bargain with our school boards, the financial support we received from the state, and the strong support all our educators received from our AEA system, non-existent in many other states. As soon as Republicans took over the state several years ago, all of those things were inexplicably attacked immediately. The very first thing the legislature did was to get rid of a bargaining system that had been in place for nearly 20 or 50 years. There was never an explanation as to why this was a good idea, as exemplified by the fact this issue had not been mentioned by anyone running for office, including the governor. Then the legislature got bogged down attempting to control what was talked about in the classroom, even though the things they were discussing were non-existent 99% of the time in 99% of classrooms. Howe was trying to control a tiny faction of classroom time supposed to improve the overall education 
of our children. It seemed like a good idea, certainly among the Republicans, to allow more options for families to have their children educated. And the best option seemed to be helping these families pay for a private education. It didn't seem to matter that most of these private education institutions are not held to the same requirements and standards as the public schools. So now we'll be sending hundreds of millions of dollars to private schools instead of to schools where most of Iowa's children are educated. This year, for example, two-thirds of private scholarships went to families that already had children enrolled in the private school. That increased choice. One of the shining examples of our state's commitment to educating all children equally was the implementation of the area education agencies many years ago. Most people can't remember before they existed. This system of pooling resources so that every child in the state had equal access to the best support system in special education, media, and general education was envied by most of the country. Once AEAs were introduced, the lone child in the most rural district could now have access to the support of a whole system of educators to make sure that child received the best education possible with no additional cost to the district. Once again, there has been no explanation of how the changes backed by Governor Kim Reynolds are going to improve the education of our children. The best chance of a child to receive a quality education is to have a quality educator leading the classroom. Everything the legislature has done in the last several years has discouraged educators from wanting to teach in Iowa. Right now, hundreds of incredible support people at the AEAs are wondering if their jobs will be radically changed or eliminated. How does that improve the education of our children? And that column today is sub- submitted by Gary Warner, who lives in Cedar Rapids. One community letter today is titled, Legislation Defining Sex Isn't About Biology. The proposed legislation to codify definitions of sex, male and female, isn't about defining biological differences. It's gender identity discrimination. Where is the evidence this is an actual problem that needs this legislation? If cisgender females are being attacked in female-only spaces by trans women, such as domestic violence shelters, I would think it would be reported to the police and we would hear about it in the media. A trans woman is much more likely to be assaulted in a male space and the proposal to not discipline school staff and faculty from using the personal pronoun parents have designated with the school district for their children, this is a direct contradiction of the parental right legislation passed in the last session, requiring parents to approve of their child's personal pronouns and name for school personnel use. Iowa has problems that affect everyday life, child care availability, staffing and costs, underfunded public education at all levels, rising cancer rates, environmental degradation, and a lack of medical professionals, along with other critical worker shortages. I would like those who support this proposal to stop using limited legislative session time and address issues that concern a majority of Iowans. All Iowa House members are up for election on November, or in November. I recommend that Iowans remember who voted for legislation that originated somewhere other than Iowa while ignoring our real issues. That letter today is signed by Carolyn Stevenson.
of Cedar Rapids. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, February 20, on IRIS. And now we turn to today's obituary page, beginning with these short notices from Belle Plain, Lillian Winslow, age 96, died Monday, February 19, Rabbit Newhouse Funeral Service. From Castalia, Alan Fritz Schnuel, age 79, died Friday, February 16, Shudy Graw Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Postville. In Cedar Rapids, Nancy Lee Rhodes, age 77, died Sunday, February 18, Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation, Marion. Also in Cedar Rapids, James, known as Jim Schleselman, 72, died Sunday, February 18, Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center. In Keokuk, Albert Paul Simmons, 73, died Sunday, February 18, Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Marion. In Lansing, Cyril A. Hawes, age 93, died Saturday, February 17, Thornburg Graw Funeral Home. In Marion, Marilyn Smith Tracy, 88, died Sunday, February 18, Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. And in Wyoming, James Clark, age 68, died Sunday, February 18, Carson's Celebration of Life Center, Makokada. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Iowa City, Rita L. Piper, age 92, longtime resident of Iowa City, passed Saturday, February 17. A gathering for family and friends will be held from 3.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Wednesday, February 21st at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service, 2720 Muscatine Avenue, Iowa City. A memorial service will begin at 5.30. For a complete obituary or to share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service. In Cedar Rapids, Frederick Allen Ruzica, Sr., 83, born into eternal life, Thursday, February 15th, at Heritage Specialty Care in Cedar Rapids. He was born March 20th, 1940, in Cedar Rapids to Myrtle Violet Langton and Joseph Anthony Ruzuka, the fourth of six children, and was baptized at St. Wenceslaus Catholic Church that same year. After attending school through 8th grade, Fred initially worked as a baker's helper and delivery person for Ceramics Bakery. And in 1963, he was hired full-time at Wilson Meat and Packing Plant, later called Farmstead, where his father, brother, and uncles were also employed. Visitation will take place from 5 to 8 p.m. Friday, February 23rd at Papich Kuba Funeral Home East, 1228 2nd Street Southeast. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10 a.m. on Saturday, February 24th at St. Wenceslaus Catholic Church. Burial will follow at St. John's Catholic Cemetery. In Waterloo, Caleb Nicholas Anus, age 21, passed away Friday, February 16. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 24 at First Christian Church in Vinton, with Brad Shockley officiating. Friends may visit with the family from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23rd at Van Steenheis Tien Funeral Home in Vinton. Burial will be at Evergreen Cemetery. 
Caleb was born August 5, 2002 in Cedar Rapids, the son of Nicholas and Melinda Robinson Enos. In his childhood, Caleb was adopted by Matthew and Jennifer Clauda Enos. Caleb's joy in life was evident in his love for trucks, fishing, John Deere tractors, and his family. A memorial fund has been established, and you can leave a condolence for the family at tnfuneralhome.com. In Clear Lake, Wanda Marie Lambert, age 95, passed away Friday, February 16th in Mason City after a brief illness. A memorial service will be held at a later date. Memorials are suggested to the Central Gardens or North Iowa Hospice. Cards can be sent to the family at Cindy, that's C-Y-N-D-Y, Stapes, P.O. Box 174 in Tiffin, Iowa, 52340. Wanda was born August 6, 1928 in Springville, Iowa, the youngest child of John, known as Harley, and Marie Larson Davis. She was a graduate of Martell High School in 1945. Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapels at 310 First Avenue North in Clear Lake is in charge of arrangements. In Maquoketa, Dennis C., known as Denny Scott, age 70, passed away Saturday, February 17th, surrounded by family at home. Dennis was born on March 19, 1953, to Louis Jr. and Betty Jane Becker Scott in Maquoketa. He was the second of three sons. Upon graduating from Maquoketa High School, he joined the family farming operation. A Celebration of Life includes a visitation at Carson's Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa. That's on February 22nd from 3 to 7 p.m., followed by a funeral service on February 23 at 10.30 a.m., burial to follow at Pence Cemetery in rural Baldwin. Memorials are suggested to Hospice of Jackson County or the Dennis C. Scott Memorial Fund. Online condolences can be left at carsonandson.com. Turning now to the sports page, Wrestling Weekend That Was is this story by K.J. Pilcher. Wrestling season is winding down. Prep seasons are in the books. College wrestling is approaching the postseason. Read about some final thoughts from the IHSAA tournament in the wrestling weekend that was. Upper Iowa didn't waste any time in making its mark in the Great Lakes Valley Conference. In the first season of the Peacocks' transition to the GLVC from the North Sun Intercollegiate Conference, they claim a share of the conference duel title Saturday at the final site duels in St. Louis, Missouri. Upper Iowa swept Indianapolis and Quincy, Illinois University to finish in a three-way tie. We wrestled well, winning 17 of 20 contested matches, said Upper Iowa coach Heath Grimm, who is in his 24th season leading the Peacocks. We pressured our opponents with an offensive mindset. We put up a lot of points on the scoreboard. The Peacocks posted a 5-1 dual record in the conference and finished 9-5 overall. The lone conference loss came to McKendree. Upper Iowa is ranked 16th in the National Wrestling Coaches Association tournament rankings. Here's a closer look at tonight's girls' regional finals in girls' basketball. 
all games are at 7 p.m. In Class 5A, Cedar Rapids, Washington, 11 and 11, is at Davenport North at 21 and 2. At first glance, Washington appears to be a prohibitive underdog, but dig a little deeper and you'll determine that the Warriors have a legitimate shot to make the one-year leap from 1 and 21 to the state tournament. North has been without junior Journey Houston, who is an Iowa commit, for the last six games due to a knee injury, and that levels the playing court immensely. The Wildcats still have a star in junior Divine Borage. Washington's swift climb this winter should be just the beginning. The Warriors' top three scorers consist of two sophomores and a freshman. Iowa City West at 13 and 9 plays at Waukee at 17 and 4. An 18 point outing by sophomore Grace Fincham enabled West to upset number 13 Southeast Polk 38 to 37 in the regional semifinals. Now the Trojans seek a bigger shocker of a CIML foe. Waukee finished third behind Johnston and West Des Moines Dowling in the state's toughest conference and has beaten its four non-CIML opponents by an average of 35 points. Four Waukee players average at least nine and a half points per game, led by junior Emily Sorensen. West has won its last four games. Cedar Rapids Prairie at 16-4 and four is at Cedar Falls, 21-1. and one. The second high-stakes game between these two teams is less than in less than two weeks, carries ramifications of postseason survival. Cedar Falls earned a 52-47 victory at Prairie on February 8, which determined the MVC Mississippi Division Championship. The Tigers have won 19 consecutive games and possess a gem in senior Grace Knudsen, who is a Drake commit, who averages 22.8 points per game. Prairie is one of the deepest teams around, with nine players capable of biting you. Sophomores Emily Larson and Brindley Haddonfelt lead the way at 12.4 and 8.8 points per game. In Class 4A, Keokuk at 19-3 is at Clear Creek Amana, 22-0. In raw terms of points allowed, Clear Creek Amana owns the best defense in 4A. That includes a stretch of five games in a six-game span, in which the Clippers held opponents below 20. Sophomore guard Avery Lauer averages 17.6 points per game and shoots a 58.8% from the floor. Senior Ava Locklear adds 11.5 points and 10.4 rebounds per contest. Western Dubuque at 17-6 is at Waverly Shell Rock, 22-0. The seeds for Western Dubuque's season of tremendous progress were sown late in last year's 5-19 campaign, in which it reached the regional finals. The Bobcats claimed the MVC Valley Division title and carry a 10-game winning streak that includes a 62-36 regional semifinal win over Decorah. And Maquoketa at 20-3 is at North Polk, 21-2. Maquoketa is one win and a 350-mile round trip from its first state tournament berth in school history. The Cardinals have won 18 of 19 since starting the season 2-2. Two two. The top two scorers are six-foot-plus sophomores Cora Wydell and Aubrey Croyman. 
North Polk went 16-0 in the Raccoon River Conference. B.C. Moore is projecting North Polk by 14. Cedar Rapids Xavier at 10-13 and 13 is at Gilbert at 14-9. and 9. Not quite the regional final that most projected, is it? The fourth and fifth seeds in the region are the last two teams standing. Xavier already has won two road games in the postseason over North Scott and DeWitt Central, and Gilbert knocked off number six Mason City in the regional semifinal. The states, or excuse me, the Saints are a state tournament regular, and they are seeking their third straight appearance and their 16th overall. In boys basketball, Kennedy and Decora finish atop class 4A and 3A. Funny how things work out sometimes. The same two boys basketball teams that began this season top ranked in 3A and 4A ended up top ranked. Of course, how Decora and Cedar Rapids Kennedy got to those number one spots at the conclusion of the regular season was quite different. The IHSAA's final poll was released Monday afternoon. Decora at 19 and 2 was the top ranked 3A team in the first poll in late December, lost to Waverly Shell Rock by 27 points, and dropped to fifth. The Vikings stayed in that position until working their way back toward the top. They were number two last week, but number one Clear Lake lost its regular season finale to Nevada to open things up for Decora. Clear Lake fell to fourth behind Waverly Shellrock, who is second, and Adele DeSoto Minburn, who is third. Marion, at 16-5, and five, stayed sixth, directly behind Solon, with a record of 20-1. and one. MOC Floyd Valley, Winterset, Davenport Assumption, and Nevada round out the top 10. All Class 3A teams around the state kicked off their respective postseasons last night with sub-state first-round games. Cedar Rapids Kennedy at 21-0, meanwhile, started and stayed at number one in Class 4A for good reason. The Cougars sailed through the regular season, beating opponents by an average of 36.7 points per game. Kennedy finished unbeaten at 20-0 last regular season, but was upset in the first round of the state tournament. This Kennedy team beat half the final top 10 in 4A this season. That includes second-ranked West Des Moines Valley, which inched up a spot over last week. So did third-ranked Sioux City East, fourth-ranked Cedar Falls, fifth-ranked Waukee, and sixth-ranked Dubuque Senior. That's because Senior soundly beat Iowa City West last week, 59-41. West fell from second to seventh. Ankeny, Pleasant Valley, and Ankeny Centennial round out the top ten. First-round sub-state games in 4A were held Monday night, with all the top 10 and six other teams receiving first-round games. Sub-state semifinals in 3A are Thursday night, and in 4A are Friday night. Class 1A and 2A are in the district final phase of the postseason. Those games are tonight, and sub-state finals are Saturday night. Those final rankings were released a week ago, the only member of the 1A or 2A top 10 not to make it to the district final was 2A number 7 Monticello, which was upset in a district semifinal last week by Dyersville Beckman. And in sports of area interest today, again in girls basketball, it's the Class 4A and 5A regional finals, 
and boys district basketball. State tournament high school bowling is taking place in Waterloo today. And if you're listening on the radio, you can hear Iowa at Michigan State at 6 p.m. That's on WMT 600 or KXIC 800. In the Things to Do column today, in the Engineering category, in honor of National Engineers Week, we will explore engineering concepts and career paths. Children will have opportunities to meet engineers from our community, complete STEM-related activities, and imagine a future where they are solving real-world engineering problems. That takes place at the Iowa Children's Museum at the Coral Ridge Mall in Coralville, from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., and the cost is free up to $10. In the music category, Key Change is presented by Orchestra Iowa and the University of Iowa School of Music. That is at the Opus Concert Cafe, 119 3rd Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. That's from 6 to 8 p.m., and a $10 suggested donation is listed. And in the art category, join Curator of Collections and Exhibitions, Julia Jessen, via Zoom as she discusses Kristen Kapp's photography, Carol with Cabbages. That's now on view in the exhibition, Ravenous Food and Art. That takes place online with the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art from 7 to 8 p.m. tonight, and that is free. Powerful Speeches from Clear Creek Amana Kids is the title of this column by Grace King. Four students were recognized this month for their powerful speeches, emulating Martin Luther King Jr. in the Clear Creek Amana Community School District's second annual speech competition. Students in third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade were asked to memorize and recite an excerpt from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech followed by their own speech. Many speeches were about equity, anti-bullying, world peace, and sustainability. The first place winners are Melina Ramirez Dominiquez, a third grader at Tiffin Elementary, Diksha Sekar, a fourth grader at Oak Hill Elementary, Hayden Davis, a fifth grader at Oak Hill Elementary, and Matthew Charbon, a sixth grader at Clear Creek Amana Middle School. The overall winner was Diksha Sekhar, whose speech is below. Judges were Lanisha Castle, Executive Director of the African American Museum of Iowa, Grace King, a K-12 educator, education reporter for the Gazette, Christine Berlin, Clear Creek Amanda High School librarian and head speech coach, and Grant Ellsburned, Clear Creek Amanda Middle School counselor and assistant speech coach. Here is Diksha's speech. As we remember and reflect on the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there are valuable lessons that should give us hope that we can overcome what we face today in a divided and teetering world. This was made abundantly clear in his I Have a Dream speech during the historic march in Washington in the summer of 1963. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, 
would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In his speech, Dr. King said, We have come here to cash a check. The check he was referring to is freedom, equality, prosperity, and peace. America's promise of freedom, equality, prosperity, and peace should be for everybody, no matter their skin color, religion, or gender. A promise I would like to see in our world is that everyone still has faith in America's promise, despite her imperfections and failures, and faith in the decency and goodwill of our fellow people. Then we will continue to rise and protect the nation and to make our way of life better. If Dr. King were alive today, what would he think about the status today of all people of color and disenfranchised groups? He firmly believed that resorting to violence and hatred was not the way to get the country to honor its promises when it came to racial inequities. In that same speech, Dr. King said, In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. So, my friends, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, remember that every individual human in this world is equal, no matter what color they are or where they are from. We all have one life and one earth, so let us uphold love, equality, forgiveness, and treat each other the way we would like to be treated. These qualities would transform this nation into an oasis of freedom and justice. Let's all join hands to fulfill Dr. King's dream, where all children in this nation will not be judged by color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Let's make this world a better place for us and for generations to come. And that article is accompanied by photos of each of the four students who won in that competition. Turning now to the top weather story, this by meteorologist Hannah Messier, Gaining Daylight. The winter solstice was just under two months ago, and we've gained quite a bit of daylight since then. Today, the sun rose at 6.56 a.m. and will set at 5.45 p.m. for a total of 10 hours, 49 minutes, and 21 seconds of daylight. On December 21, 2023, there was only 9 hours and 7 minutes and 7 seconds of daylight. The spring equinox is March 19. On the equinox, the sun will rise at 7.10 a.m. and set at 7.18 p.m. for a total of 12 hours, 7 minutes, and 44 seconds. That means we'll gain 1 hour, 28 minutes, and 23 seconds of daylight between now and the equinox. Mostly sunny today in Cedar Rapids, the wind out of the southwest at 10 to 20 looking for a high of 53 and a low of 33. The normal high for Cedar Rapids is 34 and the normal low is 17. A record high in Cedar Rapids of 61 degrees was set in 2017. The record low of 23 degrees below zero was set in 1929. Looking for mostly sunny skies to continue throughout the rest of the week, with highs in the upper 50s and then peaking in the mid-40s by Friday. We are in the waxing gibbous moon phase with moon rise at 1.52 p.m. and set at 5.52 a.m. 
That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today on IRIS. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading online at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening and have a great, safe day. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. 
CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.